Hi, welcome to the Arkansas Times Arts and Entertainment Podcast, No Small Talk. It's me, Jacob Rosenberg. As always, I'm joined by Amaya Jones, Stephanie Smittle, and we're here this week to do just a few things. First, we're going to talk with uh, Drew DeFrance of the band, DeFrance, uh, and then we're going to go into Bob Lim Flim... Oh, goodness. We got DeFrance right, which was French-sounding, and I just, I killed it. I did a great job. <laughs> Let me try again. Bob Le Flambeur. Right? Oh my, did yes. I do it? Yes. All right. That's the, that's the movie we're playing next Tuesday for the Arkansas Times movie showcase, movie uh, series. And so we're going to do a preview of that. Uh, but first, uh, is there anything that we need a preview coming up Arkansas Times event-related, Stephanie, in the near future that people should check out? There's a lot going on. I'm going to definitely say check the Arts and Entertainment section of the Arkansas Times this week. Mm-hmm. Um, if you happen to be in South Arkansas this weekend. Uh, Steve Earle is playing Copperhead Road in its entirety. It came out 30 years ago, and he and his band, The Dukes, are going to be playing in El Dorado. Um, Also, if you're really smart, where you'll be is Hot Springs. Yes. With the (laughs) convergence of people watching opportunities. They're the uh, first ever 15th annual World's Shortest St. Patrick's Day Parade. Um, Imagine, if you will... John Hedder of Napoleon Dynamite fame, Joey Fatone of NSYNC fame, Grand Funk Railroad, more Stay in the Time, Budweiser Clydesdales, the Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders, Adam Fawcett and Akeem Kemp in Hot Springs. It's also the same weekend as the Valley of the Vapors Independent Music Festival kicks off. Uh, There's a $900,000 stakes, the Rebel Stakes at Oaklawn, and then uh, also an International Hot Springs Women's Film Festival. Hot all Springs all has, happening this weekend. Everyone was like, what if we did an event in Hot Springs sometime in the spring? And everyone was like, what if we did it all on the same weekend so we could all descend upon it and leech off of all these great opportunities? Even if you don't even actually go to any of those things, I just think the people watching on Bathhouse Row will be primo Can this I, weekend. Speaking of people watching, I was driving home from work. We'll, we'll get to this interview in one moment. But I was driving home from work yesterday and I saw a man, I was like, that man looks like Steve Earle. And so um, I then tried to turn around and catch him to, like, a real Southern boy that I am, rolled out my window and go, hey, you Steve Earle. Like, like <laughs> hey, you Steve Earle, man. <laughs> like, but I couldn't catch him because it was, like, late night traffic. But then I picked up Mark sometimes. I was like, that was definitely Steve Earle. And he looks really cool. He, like, had his long beard. He had those see-through glasses that he was wearing. And... The reason this was important was I was playing a Steve Earle album with my windows down, and he looked at me in my car, which is how I recognized it was Steve Earle wow. when it happened. So, Steve Earle's in town. Oh. You should be pumping your Steve Earle out That's of your radio. Synchronicity right there. Uh, not too... I mean, it's more that Steve Earle was in town because me playing Steve Earle on the way home, I, I get in my ruts. You know, I can't stop listening to Steve Earle. So, that was awesome. It was, hopefully, that made him feel better. Steve, if you're out there, I love you. You're a big part of my life. But speaking of Steve Earle, Southern Rock legend, let's go check out this interview with Drew DeFrance. Welcome back. This is No Small Talk. I'm Stephanie Smittle, arts and entertainment editor for the Arkansas Times. And I'm here with Omaya Jones. Hello. And Drew DeFrance of DeFrance. Hey. Thanks for being here, Drew. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, we wanted to just rack your brain a little bit because you've got this kind of like little special extra special gig yeah it's definitely extra special 
extra yeah. special. It's going to be the biggest one for us yet. So. Is it? Yeah, definitely. Um, so DeFrance will be opening up for Bon Jovi. Major kudos to Bon Jovi's team for booking a local band to open. Yeah, I think it's great. It's how it should be. It's exactly how it should be. I right. mean, it was like that all through the 70s and all the way up to the early 2000s. But somewhere in there, they were just like, oh, you know, I guess record labels were like, we're only going to use the artists that we're trying to promote and not give you a chance to any of these new artists unless they're artists that we already signed, you know? And it the, it got lost in, like, locals opening for big names. It used to be a common thing, you know? And because I know tons of old friends that, like, we opened up for Grand Funk back in the day. And right. we were buds with Black Oak, and we did shows with them. And Black Oak did all those shows with King Crimson and everything, which got them a lot of attention, you know? I mean, also they had hits, of course, but... Well, this one strikes me as a particularly good match, right? Like, as I can't imagine that they have anybody on their record label that Bon Jovi fans will not be like, "Oh, hey, this is cool." When they hear you guys, I, I mean, yeah, is we're that both big guitar drum bands, so big guitars, big drums, pumping bass, and a lot of heavy vocals. So you guys have toured relentlessly, which um, over the last couple of years, do you have any idea how many shows you've played, say, last year? Or year yeah. Before? Oh, last year was 123. The one before that was 177. And we've gotten into like almost 20 or th- not a little over 30 this year. So we're at about 437 or 38 shows, something like that. For But we started in 2015, February 15th. So we just turned... Uh, three years old so it's still a kind of a baby project but it's starting to really gain its legs and starting to gain a stride and it's a big baby <laughs> it's a big baby it's a baby Huey. it's a big baby Huey. it's a big sound so do you feel like you play the same whether you're playing to a dozen people or or whether you're playing at verizon arena like do you guys feed off that or is just like this is what we do and we're gonna give you what we yeah have i always try to envision it as a verizon arena and okay so it's gonna be cool that it's kind of coming full circle because like every gig i've always like looked out and seen people that aren't there you know that's like, awesome just like try to be like rocking all the way to the guy in the back you know or whatever and so you just try to put on the best show you can and work hard and i think that's why we got this gig because i mean we, we just were like you said, it's been relentless hard work for us. Like, we've been doing show after show. Every week, there's at least two or three shows. And those first two years, me and those uh, me and those cats, we did, like, man, just, like, there was, like, 15 dates a month, something like that, yeah. or more. So every other day was a show, something like that. So talk a little bit about your band. Your lineups changed a little bit over the years, mm-hmm. but the sounds really kind of has, has had this core sound to it. Yeah, it's, it's funny for how many times it's changed. For a group of about eight or nine guys, it's changed, like, 11 different times. <laughs> wow. Just depending on, like, who was available and at that time in their life or whatever or you know like because i mean our guitarist he played drums for like eight months for us and i don't think anybody ever remembers that but it was a long eight months for us and then our original drummer came back and so i mean there's just been tons of changes we've lost keyboard players and traded bass players and guitar players but we've always tried to keep this sound that we kind of developed over at uh, jason tedford's working at his studio wolfman studios there We've probably done almost four records worth of music there, and we've only released the one. And uh, the other music, I'm just kind of sitting on. I've been chopping it out to different labels to see what happens with it. I'm not trying to do an independent release because it wasn't uh, fiscally the smartest thing. 
also I'm always trying to look to do something to separate us from the other bands that are mm-hmm. you know surrounding ourselves with so at the risk of just beating the uh, starstruck thing to death, tell me a little bit about sort of the call and like how you got linked up with this gig and how you felt about it. Well, it, it was a it was it was actually a Tuesday, so it was like I was sitting at the house and uh, uh, sitting with my dog, and we were just hanging out for the morning. I was going over my emails, and all of a sudden I got a call, and they were like, "Hey, uh, would you?" Uh, have the March 20th is from Verizon. Do you have March 20th open to uh, open up for Bon Jovi and do the show? And I was like, yeah, I think we can uh, fit that in the schedule, no problem. You Did know? you just play it off? like? Something? Yeah, yeah, of course. Like, you know, we've done this a hundred times, no problem. Yeah, we're cool. <laughs> uh, and stage plot-wise, was it like, I mean, is it cool to work with sort of that big mechanism, or is it pretty much the same as what you guys take on tour? Uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of the same equipment we used on tour. It's just going to be more spread out. We had to go buy some longer cables. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're so, used to maybe yeah, play yeah. sometimes where you're yeah, really tight. The amp's going to be you know a lot further away than it normally is. But with that kind of sound system, I mean, we're each going to have like two monitors. So, I mean, we're going to hear ourselves perfectly well. It should be the best sound we've ever had. Okay, so Bon Jovi, what's your favorite era? What... So I first got into Bon Jovi in the It's My Life era. And like, so I, that's when I was in high school and I was like coming up and I was like, oh man, these guys rock. And I was like, wait a minute, they're, a, they're an older band. They've been doing this for a while. And I kind of went and got in their, their back hits and I was like, oh man, this stuff is so guitar oriented, shred oriented, you know, and Sam Bora was always like a guitar hero for anyone my age at that time that was playing guitar because I had all the issues of Guitar World and Guitar One and they had little lessons in the back and there'd always be a lesson with Richie Sambor or something like yeah. that. And then I loved the Young Guns too. And that whole soundtrack was a big part of my childhood and like, you know, playing Cowboys and Indians with Blaze of Glory in the background and stuff like that. So, you oh, know. Yeah. Yeah. I understand he's one of the few people to have hits across that many decades, right? Like, cause yeah. he had this hair era, living on a prayer era, which as we were talking about yeah, earlier, bad it has medicine to be and all that, one of the wanted dead and alive, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and th- and then like um, sort of ballads, like the mm-hmm. I was I remember yeah. always, which yeah. I'm maybe a little bit ashamed to. And admit I think their first hit was "Runaway," and that was a really rocking song. Yeah. 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 And then it's my life. Was was wait was like two thousand four or three something like that I think. So I I. Uh, in preparation for writing a little bit about Bon Jovi, I revisited some of this stuff and came uh, across the video for It's My Life. Have yeah. you seen this? Yeah, where they're in like the subway or whatever and the, the crowd's there. Yeah. And, yeah, and that was like a cool thing because they had a talk box and you don't hear a talk box on any hit songs anymore, you know? That's the guitar thing where yes, like Peter Frampton had. the Frampton had. thing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, as a young guitarist, I was like, oh, that's so cool. I must have one, you know? And If you haven't <laughs> seen the video, listeners, check it out. It's basically like a metaphor for getting off your computer and off your phone and doing, like, things in yeah. real time. And, and that's when the internet was, like, just starting up. That's when you'd still call your friend and be like, hey... Miss, uh, you know, whatever, can I talk to my friend Billy? Is he there? And then you could actually, like, be like, I don't want to talk to anybody right now, Mom. You know, or whatever. You know, I'm not here, you know. And so now, it's such a different world now. You yeah, know? it's harder it's, to be like, I feel I'm like an old person saying that, but I feel like it happened really drastic. Like, you know, like, we went from 
these cell phones that you could play snake on that you you know couldn't take pictures with all of a sudden it's like you can do everything with this stuff and it's so changed our whole society the way we listen and perceive and buy music and i mean it's changed the music business drastically i mean it's pretty much a whole new wild west business and everybody's trying to figure out how to in, in keep the old ways intact with this new developments that are happening and what's the next step forward nobody's still figured out What's the next media in the lineage from albums to cassettes to CDs? Like, what's the next physical? We just got bored and went back to yeah, we're LPs. Because digital's yeah. cool, and everybody does that on their phone, but people still want something tangible, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's non-existent right now. I think that's really going to... If somebody develops that, and of course it's going to have to be like they did with CDs and cassettes, the entertainment industry is going to have to get with the industrial industry and say, look, we got to work together on, we're going to make a product. You're going to make something that plays our product. And none of that's happened right now, I feel, mm-hmm. I feel like. I feel like everybody's so competitive that there's no tech support with, and like, real money behind, you know, Hollywood and all that. You know what I'm saying? And, like, you know, L.A. and New York as far as, and Nashville being, like, the biggest music, you know, things. I don't feel like they're working with technology to be... Uh, thinking to the future of what's the next step and, and like because that's a billion dollar question not million billions upon billions of dollar question to do it without compressing the hell out of it exactly like yeah. mp3 suck and those are about to be like non-existent in a few years i think they already said they're going to quit doing uh they're already cds are done like you know best buy said so they're done by july i was in best buy the other day they're pretty much got like one bin left of like five dollar cds and like i think that was like two or three weeks ago so they're probably all gone by now mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. they're also going to stop like doing like digital downloads and streaming as much they're moving to different formats and newer cleaner ones because nobody wants to buy the mp3 because it sounds like ugh, you know right it doesn't have the the clarity that you would get off of a physical copy like a CD or a cassette or a, a record. And of course the hope is then that the trade-off happens where um, the the quality can stay high without meaning that every musician gets royally screwed. And Neil Young was trying to do that with Pono and I don't think any, like I said, there was no connection between you know the record and music industry and the tech people working together other than neil trying to do it with his own you know connections and uh, you know somebody should have swooped in and steve jobs that thing and just been like oh this is the next thing or something like that a lineage after that you know elon musk i know you listen to no small talk (laughs) you can hear us you've put a tesla in space and this is this is the next frontier in terms of people, how they access music, do you think people are just used to getting things for free or very, very cheap? Oh, yeah. Because that's they certainly the are, but that only works for Chance the Rapper right now. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's got such memorable... Like, he's got merchandise mm-hmm. crazy out on the other side, and he's making all his money off that in shows. And not a lot of artists are, have that capability. I mean, I guess they do, because he really came up from nothing, you know, in Chicago. Like, he was just, you know, had some... Hype stuff and everybody loved it, of course, because it was great work. And you know, I mean, I mean, that's really what it is these days: is the quality of a product and how you mm-hmm. produce it and how you present it and how if big money gets behind yeah. it or not. There had to been big money get behind him at some point for him to get to that level. You know what I'm saying? Whether or not like he will completely say that in public, it had to at some point. Whether it was his money or somebody else's, it was Beyonce. Yeah. Well, I think, <laughs> you think so? I I mean, I just know, you know, there's that yeah. wonderful clip of yeah. her, like, photobombing yeah. him, and he's like, what the fuck? Like, I mean, yeah. somebody would be just 
just plain ignorant not to get behind an artist like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do you not see dollar signs when you see that as a business person, you know? Well, I know, like, to your point about somebody coming in and figuring out what, the, like, the next physical medium is mm-hmm. and how bad MP3s are, my experience mostly is, like, on Twitter and talking to people in, like, comics mm-hmm. specifically or people in around sort of, like, those artistic things is, like, people, not only are people used to getting things for free, but then they will actually brag to creators about going on a tour sites and stealing Oh, stuff, yeah. Right? No, I have people come up to me in shows and go, hey, man, listen to your stuff the other day, but I didn't buy it online or nothing. You know, I just listened on YouTube. I'm just like... Yeah. Oh, thanks for just kicking me in my face. I appreciate that. You know, but as an artist, I have to realize this is the times we Mm -hmm. live in, and I have to accept that that happens more than people buy my records. And that hopefully if they like it, they'll come to my show, and I can make money off of that. I think that's that's like the barrier for someone who wants to invest in physical media Mm -hmm. is figuring out out how you you get people to pay for it and how you convince people that it's worth paying for. Exactly. Because I think we're just we're just not used to it anymore. I still buy mm-hmm. CDs. And now that it's been, um, the value has been driven down for, um, like the perception of its value has been driven down, it's hard to re- it's hard to yeah. go back. Which is the oh, rationale yeah. behind the, the single issue Wu-Tang album. You know, it's just like, people have devalued this art, so we're going to do something, there's going to be one copy, we're going mm-hmm. to sell it for as much as possible. And then, yeah. Like, that was, that's the entire rationale. Uh, Drew DeFrance, everyone, you can check DeFrance out Tuesday, March 20th at Verizon Arena. This says it starts at 7.30 p.m. Is that real? Yes, that okay. is real. It's real. I, I suggest everybody get there at 6.30 or 7, though. That way they can get their beer and nachos and hot dog and everything and sit down and get their seat for a big rocking show because you want to get all that done because we're going to get you off your feet. Cool. Thank you so much for being here, and tell us where we can find more of your music. You can find it at uh, defrancemusic.com. We're also on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, any of those. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Hi, welcome back. Uh, We're going to get right into our last and final film in the Arkansas Times I, I always get this wrong. Is it film series, movie series? I think we use the, the term screening series. Oh, seriously? Not even film or movie? I feel so comfortable. Well, I think that's more alliterative, right? Screen. Screening series. Screening yeah. series, okay. We're uh, the last film in this trio mm-hmm. um, of heist films. And it's been la- a long ride. It's been a long ride. It's been a long heisty ride. And so... Uh, the last film we're going to do is Bob Lim... Bob... <laughs> All right, folks, we're doing it. Bob Flambore, <laughs> which was released in 1955 is what I have down, but I think it might be 1956. Is it, uh, I have 1955, too, and I think... Uh, I think we were talking about this before. This American release was until, like, 1982 or 83, right? Yeah, it wasn't released until much later in uh, the U.S., but sometimes in the, in the, in the mid-1950s in France... Um, We'll get into a lot of this later, but just briefly, uh, it's a film about uh, a gambler uh, who's good at winning, and he's he is kind, classy, and well liked by virtually everyone in town, including police inspector Le Drou. Um, but his luck turns sour. I'm reading from a Google description. His luck turns sour. He begins to lose friends. It makes the most just desperate gamble of his life. Uh, I'm not going to describe the gamble because I think that's actually a spoiler. But uh, it's in French. It's directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. Um, and it was written by... I wrote a little bit about this this week. It's it's written by Auguste Le Breton, uh, who is the same guy who wrote the novel Rafifi. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're kind of returning to... Our first film was Rafifi. 
uh, and then we're kind of, we went way up to Point Break, and now we're returning back to sort of this one of these two films, Rafifi and um, Bob Lefembor, that really set up what the heist film would be. And it seems important to me that they both came from this same time period, um, which was in 1950s France. So maybe we'll return to that idea later. But Omaya, why did you pick this film and, and kind of what should we be looking out for generally as we're going into the film next Tuesday? Uh, so I picked this film because there's an element of it that is sort of fantastical and dreamlike that I really love. And when you when you see it, you'll you'll get it. And uh, Melville does some interesting things in terms of playing with the narrative form too, like the use of voiceover. And instead of like describing things, he shows you sort of like how things play out and sort of the imagination of the people in the film. And um, and then Melville is also one of these directors who isn't of the new wave, French New Wave. He sort of predates it by a little bit. And there's there's like a whole group of uh, directors that fit that that category including like Agnes Varga and some people who are a little bit older than those new wave directors but Melville sort of defined a lot of the crime genre in general and there's this it's this quote from this New Yorker profile uh, of, a, of a series screening series they were doing where uh, the author Anthony Lane described um, described sort of like the style of Melville films and he says this is how you should attend the forthcoming retrospective on Jean-Pierre Melville movies at Film Forum. Tell nobody what you are doing, even your loved ones, especially your loved ones, must be kept in the dark. If it comes to a choice between smoking and talking, smoke. Dress well, but not, but, dress well, but without ostentation. Wear a raincoat, buttoned and belted, regardless of whether there is rain. Any revolver should be kept until you need it in the pocket of the coat. Finally, before you leave home, put your hat on. If you don't have a hat, you can't go. Which that, is, that is accurate it feels like to me mm. should we it, it's your decision here kind of on this but we can go into Melville and I feel like we could spend a long time mm -hmm. talking about Melville I kind of want to hold that back because I think we're going to get lost in it for a, for a second let's let's go bigger picture to the heist mm -hmm. where are we at in the heist film when we're talking about Bob Lynn Flipboard and and what what makes is it heisty like Point Break or Rafifi or is it kind of a different kind of heist film it's more like Rafifi although I say like the the character of Bob is, is very different than the character of the Stefan Law right mm -hmm. like the Stefan Law is very precise and meticulous and organized uh, Bob not so much he's a gambler and I think Flimbor actually translates to something like high roller mm -hmm. uh, so he likes to take chances and he's very flamboyant and, and he, he wants to be known for who he is so it's not I, I would say the goal is almost not even to like not get caught. It's just like to be seen or known for doing something big. And I, I guess there's also something important to point out here, which is there are two ways to think about how a film or a mm -hmm. genre is influential. There's one way to think about it, as we've sort of described in the past, where Rafifi influenced going forward mm -hmm. what it meant to create a heist film, right? Mm -hmm. And Point Break was a certain kind of zenith mm -hmm. of a heist film, and it influenced heist films going forward. I'm not sure, but from, from the way I've understood Bob Linflambor in the chronology of film history, it was influential as a heist film, but perhaps its influence, sometimes like how we think about Raymond Chandler detective novels, novels was actually on art film in general. It, it had maybe perhaps a greater effect not on the genre of heist, but the idea that these detective novels and these detective stories in film had a real effect because they were sort of the, the candy and the sweet stuff that 
these future art directors would use as an influence. Is, is that sort of... Yeah, I, 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 sort of aesthetically in the style, um, and not, not just this film, but Melville in general, you look something like Le Circle Rogue or Le Samurai, and you can see like people copy the aesthetic look of, of like the way the actors dress and how like it sort of defines what cool is. And I think that is really a big influence on a lot of people, including, you know, a few years later, Breathless would come out, and that certainly, I think, um, Godard was influenced by... Somebody. Yeah, even The 400 Blows has... Yeah. I mean, it's not directly influenced as strong as... Breathless is obviously influenced by Double yeah. Flimper. But um, the French New Wave... I, I guess we should back up just to make sure we're describing this properly. The French New Wave begins really with The 400 Blows and this mm -hmm. Truffaut, and uh, that's in 1959, I believe. And so what, why these films are, and then Breathless, which is early Godard, which is radically different than late mm -hmm. Godard. Late Godard is much more experimental, but yeah. it's important to put it into perspective that early Godard was extremely experimental as well. Uh, with Breathless, which is probably the most, the film that you see if you're in any intro to film class. Um, but the French New Wave uh, is significant for a lot of reasons and it's worth study within itself, but it was also hugely influential later on, mm -hmm. and it redefined for a lot of people what film could be and sort of was this moment of film becoming artistic in a way right. that was... I mean, there I, were, I, It was artistic before, but it sort of became this fashionable way where there's this breaking point where French New Wave defined... Well, the, the, uh, you the, know, the all those directors, they approached film from a completely different perspective. Like, yeah. they, there was all theory, because they were writing for this magazine, Cahiers du Cinema, and they were sort of analyzing and breaking down films in a way that I think a lot of American directors hadn't been at that point. And, yeah. And looking at it as an art form. And, and, and that took from Italian neorealism and from, I'm going to forget, Bazan and Italian neorealism. And Bazan was writing Chassé du Cinema. But all that to say, we often think about um, French New Wave as coming out of nowhere to revolutionize right. the world. But I think what uh, why Melville is significant and why this film is significant is it, it actually charts a much more gradual progression from... Mm -hmm. Um, from for the uh, French New Wave as a post World War II phenomenon. Right. So let's let's get into Melville, who is okay. a weird human being, <laughs> and why I think that this film and the detective genre and the I'm 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 broadening heist to detective yeah. genre because I think Bob Lefebvre, mm -hmm. while not a detective film, uh, dabbles in um, what this post World War II idea of using uh, genre fiction and genre film to start uh, telling stories that were broader and more significant. And, and that w ended up influencing art films. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because it happens in other genres too. Like, mm -hmm. you know, Murakami, the author, and uh, Bolaño, the as an author, both talk about reading Westerns and detective novels as paperback, and that influenced their sort of more Nobel-y kind mm -hmm. of writing. But Melville... Um, should we go Melville or Breton first? Which which one do you think we should delve into as a as a figure here? Uh, let's do Melville. Melville, okay. Melville, um, and I is a weird, weird dude. First of all, his name was not Melville when he was born. He was born uh, Jean Pierre Grumbach in nineteen seventeen, uh, and so I think for some reason uh, this might be missing. He he changed his name to Melville. Um, not after reading Moby Dick, but right. actually after reading Pierre colon or comma the ambig amb ambiguities, which is another novel written by um, Melville, Herman Melville, Herman Melville um, and which was 
hated. This novel was like absolutely panned. Everyone hated this novel, as they did Moby Dick as well. But Melville describes it as a spiritual autobiography, and moreover, Melville describes it as a, um, it's the story of this 19-year-old young man who's an heir to a uh, fortune who's named uh, Pierre as well. Mm -hmm. So, the only, and, you know, Melville in the 1930s reads Melville the director in the 1930s reads Melville the author um, and then he starts creating films and he, he sort of breaks away from society to create these films he's creating them all in his own terms and he's creating them in these odd ways and um, I'm just going to read this this is from a paper for someone writing about Melville for Melville the filmmaker incorporating an American artistic identity was also a central element in his creation of a new persona in the 1960s, this meant wearing sunglasses and a white Stetson and driving around Paris in a Ford convertible, savoring the pleasure of cursing out anyone who made snide comments to him, mistakenly assuming that he didn't know how to speak French. So Melville was into creating this different persona, and in part this American persona, and in part this weird gangster persona, and you know it was all about whatever post-World War II finding some sort of identity in, in all of this and he's a weird guy you know he's a really weird guy and he's making these really weird movies that really connect but also are mainstream like he's not right. trying to be separate he's trying to make money doing it at the same time too it's a strange yeah. director well, I also think it's interesting it's the connection between him sort of wanting to reinvent himself as, as, with this this image of sort of this American sort of image and there's a number of directors that I, I think are interesting that are sort of fascinated um, by America or the idea of America and Melville wasn't one of them, but a lot of them go on to make films that take place or are set in America, which I think is interesting, like One Winters and uh, Paris, Texas, and McDonald's, Three Billboards. Mm -hmm. um, even like Guillermo del Toro's, you know, seems to have his fascination with a period of American history, that, which we, he explored within uh, The Shape of Water. Yeah. And wh what, you know, what is Melville looking for in these weird identities and in the movies that he makes I mean partially the movies he makes are films like Bob Love Flambeau mm -hmm. which are genre and others are about the French resistance yeah. during World War II and they're about you know he was born Jewish in 1917 mm -hmm. I think I said that already but uh, Melville the filmmaker mm -hmm. seemed to be looking for something I'm not yeah I mean, and he was so in he wasn't just making films about the resistance. He was part of the resistance yeah. in World War II. And he was actually uh, evacuated from Dunkirk. Which, yeah. <laughs> so, like, so he, you know, he was in the French Army. He fought in the war. He joined the resistance. And then I think that became sort of a defining feature of his identity. I guess it would have to, right? It was a pretty significant event. Yeah. I, and I'll, I'll read this quote from him. He said, Melville said, When I am in a rented car driving along a highway in the West or the South, of the United States here, he means. I'm a happy man. At that moment, I don't need anything else. My emotions are contained. I found my white whale. What in the world? I like. <laughs> I am so confused by that because, uh, that seems to me contrary to someone who's a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. You know, I think we're used to the idea of the pompous filmmaker discussing their art or any art, artist discussing their art as their white whale. But for him to describe driving along, pretending to be American, going by the name Melville, and then using like this assumption of Melville's identity, but then also like somehow playing a character that Melville would write, searching for a white whale, 
it's a very strange amalgamation of ideas. You know, he's really, I don't know exactly what he's doing. It, it's really weird. Uh, he's just being free. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but in all of that, uh, the reason I bring it up is because something that we were returning to is 1950s France mm-hmm. and post-World War II cinema. And what does the heist film mean in post-World War II cinema? And um, for me, it, it as so many films do, it's about what does it mean to be who I am? What does it mean to have an identity? And I think Jean-Pierre Melville and I think Bob Le Flambeur and I... Um, and Auguste Le Breton, who we'll talk about in a second, who, is, who wrote the dialogue for this film, are searching for a sense of meaning, and their characters literally go steal something. They go steal an idea, uh, they go steal something, and maybe that something can give them an I. Maybe that something can um, give them who, back who they are. Because it's important to keep in mind, especially for a Jewish man at this time, like Melville was, but also for all of Europe, there's a sense... Um, of collapse of what the world meant and what it was right. supposed to be. And so um, suddenly there's one has to recreate and uh, find a version of themselves to be. So that, you know, and there's this process of almost like that's a adventure and a stealing of it and, and a precarious adventure. And so I think that's what's going on here. But also I wouldn't be surprised if Melville is just insane. This dude, like, doesn't <laughs> make sense to me. Um, and I've, I've been trying to read a lot to figure it out. Uh, yeah, I think that actually, um, I'm just making this connection where you, I think it'd be interesting to do something looking at the way they use the heist um, to sort of set up a lifestyle outside of the system, right? And even like in Point Break where the whole impetus of for the heist is like to fund this lifestyle where you don't have to be part of this corrupt system that is, you know, capitalism or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I think France is different. You know, it wouldn't yeah. be exactly the same, but it's still sort of this outsider lifestyle um, on the fringes of society. Yeah, it, it's. I'm trying to think of a good heist film that doesn't, um, whether clunkily or not. I'll mm-hmm. say. I'll say that. I'll, let, hold on. Whether clunkily or not, most heist films do deal with the, or do they do subterfuge the idea that, oh, we're um, burning down the establishment yeah. and the traditions of the political whatever. I would say somewhat clunkily in Point Break mm-hmm. versus other films, but it's definitely there, and it's always well. It's even there. in December, we screened um, Out of Sight, you know, and the whole thing is like George Clooney's character; it just can't be a part of society. Like he puts on a suit, and he just he's, he just he tears it off, and he just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Like stealing, thieving is the only thing that he that he can do. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's also. Uh, a greater question and I think it's explored in Bob Lifflinbor which is what is the joy in being mm-hmm. a thief what is the joy in just taking risks to take risks which is there in Point Break 2 jumping out of the plane and and things like that um, you know what is the adrenaline junkie part of a heist um, and that's sort of at play again here which is is there a certain um, point at which the heist film is is basically also for us like a adrenaline junkie version of a search for identity where it's like it's fun and it's fast and we get to get lost in it and we don't really have to think um too hard at sometimes you can you can watch a heist film at face value you don't have to think about it deeply but um and it's sort of this high stakes proposition um but maybe underneath it there's a sense that it is actually 
something of right. importance, but you can also be read on sort of that surface right. adrenaline level. Um, sort of backing out a little bit, why there's a lot of in Bob Lefflinbor, you talked about the style, mm-hmm. the style of the suit and the, and the smoking and the not talking to people. What is the attraction of this in watch? Like you know, there's something interesting about films from this era that they have these these men the other men yeah. uh, that dress and act in a certain in a certain way why what about those men at that time do you think was attractive and well I think audience? you know French films in particular um, like if you look something like Breathless there's this scene where John Belmondo walks in front of this window and he sees this poster of Humphrey Bogart and he does this thing where he rubs his thumb over his top lip and so you can see he's sort of imitating this idea of this American actor and Humphrey Bogart and my understanding is that during the war, there was this embargo and U.S. films weren't allowed in. But post-war, you just get this flood of American films. And so, like, they're sort of looking at this and the changing in the style of American films. And they're adopting a lot of these effects from uh, these uh, crime films. Things like, you know, uh, Maltese Falcon. Things that are adapted from, like, Chandler and Hammett. And they're sort of just, like, appropriating all of these, it's like, stylistic elements and the dress and, like, the, the, the mannerisms of, like, gangsters and things. Yeah, so it does seem like there is a tradition that goes from those crime novels mm-hmm. to the film to the crime novels now and, mm-hmm. you know, to the procedural shows that are so popular now. Um, Collateral, which just mm-hmm. hit Netflix, seems like a, a good example of something like that. Um, but when we're looking at this and we're looking at heist going forward, I think Bob Lifflin Bohr really opens up this idea that the heist film comes out of the detective novel mm-hmm. a little bit more than perhaps we've explored in the past. And so I think that's a good transition to talk about Auguste Le Breton, who's the writer of this. And I'm sure I'm pronouncing it incorrectly, even though I'm trying really hard to do like a little French lull with it. But uh, Le Breton literally means uh, the Britain, like of Brittany, is I think what I uh, wrote down here. Uh, and he wrote 77 novels. <laughs> So good luck topping that. Uh, and he was an orphan. He was an orphan, um, and he was born August Manafort. Uh, shout out to Paul Manafort. He was born August Manafort, uh, and he like Paul Manafort, he was a criminal. And he uh, was a young man who was sort of a rudderless youth, is what I wrote here. And after the war, he was really good at this slangy French. And then he just started writing novels after he kind of promised his daughter he would write. Uh, novels, and he sort of defined. He, he maybe he's sort of like Raymond Chandler in that he defined this sort of um, crimey, like yeah. really. I think it's hard for us to understand because we have subtitles. But supposedly the dialogue in both Rafifi and Bob Lefflinbor is really fast and tight right. and, and impressive in its use of um, in French in this way that Le Breton was really good at. It, it struck me, and I, I noted it that he also changed his name. Um, and so there is something going on there. And he also found some sort of purpose in the resistance in France. You know, he, I, it sounds like he really didn't know what he was going to do with his life until the resistance in World War II in France. Um, and it's interesting to think about maybe, like, what about post-World War II climate was appealing for detective novels and what about American identity at that time was appealing for someone in Europe was it because we helped win the war well but I, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with one yeah sure the US helping the allies in the war but also just like a total breakdown of social order having to rebuild an entire continent and it creates this space to where like you have these elements that can come in and sort of 
you know, where there's no order, you know, people will come in and, and sort of create a market, um, an underground market, like the third man is sort of similar. It's about the same sort of thing. Yeah. Um, that makes sense yeah. to me. But, all right, well, let's, we, we've gone down our, our hole. Let's, um, you know, let's do some, some general stuff here. Is there anything that people just should watch for that uh, you would recommend looking out for in the film? Uh, it should look fantastic. Uh, I didn't realize this until I was getting ready for this, but apparently uh, the Rialto, the people who own the rights to this film, this is a new 4K restoration. Wow. So, uh, you know, when I saw it, it was on DVD, and, and so this should look fantastic. I think should, people are going to really appreciate that. Um, it is, uh, going forward in the series, instead of doing, you know, blocks of, like, several films that fit a theme, I'm going to try to daisy-chain each film, so, like, the next film will have something in common with this, but it won't be a heist film. Mm-hmm. And so, well, like I said earlier, there are these fantastical and dreamlike elements to this film that I'm, I'm hoping to, to piggyback off of uh, going into the film for April. Yeah. Which uh, I submitted a pick. I haven't heard back yet, but and then we're going to go from there. So since we're finishing up Heist, let's we'll do even broader look. What, Stephanie, how do you feel like now you're going to be going into your third Heist film in a row? What do you feel like you've learned about the genre or what's intrigued you about the genre most of all? I've learned that it's about dudes. It's about <laughs> men. Yeah. And it's about masculinity. <laughs> um, one thing that struck me when I was finding some art to put together uh, when I started looking at the images from Bob Lifflinber is how uh, coquettish the, the woman is in the film. The, the Maybe the one female character, as far as I know. This sounds about. I'm thinking of. Sounds right. How many have actually have speaking parts, perhaps one or two? Yeah, she was described in the caption for one of the still frames as an amoral young woman. Uh, so <laughs> listeners, I advise you to come away from the film and think uh, think whether you agree with with that uh, summation. Also, something interesting that struck me um, again, like kind of tangential to the film, but is the way that they portrayed her on the film poster uh, made her look like she was a couple decades older than she appears to be in the film and I, I, I just found that interesting and it makes me wonder if they um, f- you know if the film was a little bit more willing to be um, on the margins with how old this woman was as opposed to you know m- did they make it more palatable yeah. for a mainstream audience when they did the artwork and the, and the poster for it but yes um, my my big takeaway from uh, Heist Films is that it has a lot to do with l- like as you pointed out an attempt to live outside the system and it is all about dudes so something that I think we talk, we've talked about before but it seems relevant now that we're finishing this up is when you're trying to go back and say, okay, what's the history of a genre or even any art form? What you get caught in is that art form has conformed to society's messed up standards for likely as long as it's been around. So when you dive into the history of it, unless you're very purposeful, for example, we're tracking the heist film. A lot of heist films have been about dudes. So we're ending up with films that are about dudes because we're trying to track a genre. And like, this is what's been important because to the men that have been given the opportunity to make heist films, the films that were important to them before were directed by men and starring men. So it's men, 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 influencing men, men, men. And it's hard to break that chain unless you're purposeful in saying here was an underappreciated thing because sometimes that which has been influential influences... I think I'm making sense, so I'm going to stop. But basically, looking 
back at that, you know, how do we think about that problem and how do you, as someone who writes about art all the time, think about highlighting not only that which has been quote unquote influential, but which has been important and overlooked from films to music to art, whatever, you know, it's something that we run into and we talk about a lot and I think it's hard to to do at times. It's tricky. It's tricky enough when you're just talking about movies and, and, you know, art in, that's all in English to Mm -hmm. know, uh, is this within the tradition? Is it responding to the tradition or is it somewhere in the middle, in the middle ground? Um, I mean, that becomes even more difficult when there's a, like a language barrier at play. But something that came to mind as you were discussing the film is the opening scene for Casino, which is one of my favorite movies and just dropped on Netflix. It mm-hmm. starts with, um, you know, Sharon Stone's character really pulling off this uh, amazing feat of like chaos. And <laughs> uh, and that's the way the film begins. Just fantastically juxtaposed I think with the um, with the song Hoochie Coochie Man and you know that's a really great example of um, a movie that operates completely within the tradition of like tough guy gangster movie culture but then it's real the real unpredictable person um, the the real master of if you want to call it the heist or or the you know the scam is um is Sharon Stone's character. And Omaya, we talked about this before, but that's why something like Black Panther, even though we might not have loved it, is essential because it's setting up a paradigm for in the future. Ryan Coogler will be influential to directors down the line, directors down the line, and setting up a new canon is important long-term, long-term, you know, just giving... You know, because we're redefining who gets to do things and who is the influencer. Absolutely. Um... We actually have a long conversation about how Ryan Coogler pulled that off, because I think there's sort of a lot of things around like about the production of that film that um, is worth sort of delving into. But yeah, I'll, I'll just point out that I, uh, in collecting a list of why this film is important, mm-hmm. I just noted down a few very prominent directors that thought that this was one of their favorite films, Bob mm-hmm. Lefebvre. And uh, tell me if you notice anything similar about them. Uh, it's John Luke Goddard, Stanley Kubrick, Jim Jarmusch, Quentin Tarantino, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Mike Hodges. They sound like they're a bunch of white guys. Yeah, and, and so not to downgrade yeah. them or this film, but it is important to note that when you are trying to develop, okay, here we want to screen something that's older, that's mm-hmm. part of the canon, that's influenced a lot of people, when that canon has been influenced over and over and by the social forces at work, it really complicates... Uh, and you have to take that into consideration. So I, I think that um, as we finish up the heist, something I've definitely learned in all of it too is that the heist film was partly so influential and we think about it as so important because men have dominated cinema mm-hmm. for so long and now with books like Ferrante's new, Ferrante's Napolitano series, we can say, we're starting to say, oh my gosh, you know, uh, male critics have for years overlooked talked about how the detective novel is so great but the um classic like romance novel hasn't gotten the same valorization uh for its genre greatness and same with the probably the rom-com we probably have underplayed something like when harry met not probably no when harry met sally but you know we've underplayed rom-coms we've underplayed romances um jane austen was underplayed for a long time so uh, and we've just underplayed a lot of different things so any final things on the heist film or bob leflambor that we should people should make sure to look out for going forward you guys did already. All right, you did? All right. Well, look out for me asking questions five times in a row. Because I think I've done that 
multiple, multiple times throughout the uh, Bob Lefebvre um, discussion. All right. Tuesday, what time? 7 p.m.? 7 o'clock. 7, mm-hmm. 7 p.m. at... Riverdale 10 Cinema. Riverdale 10 Cinema. Okay. All right. We're going to be done with our Bob Lefebvre discussion, and then we're just going to go into some recommendations. All right, welcome back. Let's go right into recommendations. I'll do mine really, really quick. I read a new, uh, the new Oliver Sacks book, River of Consciousness. Um, Oliver Sacks is one of my favorite writers. I absolutely love this book. I just think it's wonderful. He's so curious, he's so smart, and he's so happy to learn things about the world, and it makes me delighted to pay more attention to the natural world around me and it's put me in a very very good mood for the past <laughs> few days all right stephanie what recommendations do you have uh i'm going to recommend a video that's out by a fayetteville band called high lonesome the song is called she's in love with the fascist the video <laughs> is incredible it um is a footage of the YPJ or the women's defense unit in turkey and so i asked them a little bit about that i hope uh, Martin, if you're out there from High Lonesome, you won't mind me uh, reading this, but it basically summed it up as saying that they, as a band, believe, as the Kurds of Rojava do, that human liberation begins with women's liberation. In other words, we endorse genealogy, J-I-N-E-ology, <laughs> that among all the interlocking systems of oppression, what radical feminist theorist Bell Hooks calls the capitalist, imperialist, white supremacist patriarchy, the patriarchy is that which holds the others together. Mankind's domination over womankind was the first form of oppression, and from there sprang the others. Radical democracy is the first line of defense against fascism, and the Kurds of Rojava engage in radical democracy with women's liberation as its foundation. Check it out. High Lonesome, She's in Love with a Fascist is the name of the two. Wow, Omar, do you have any recommendations? Uh, I'm going to recommend for all you documentary film lovers a podcast that I've been listening to recently called The Document, produced by WNYC. And what he does is every episode, the host takes a look at a different documentary with the documentary director, and they take an aspect of the film and they break it down. So, for example, a screen that we filmed last year was Christian Johnson's camera person. Mm -hmm. And Mm. he talks to her, and there's a portion in her film, which is made up of these vignettes of or snippets from documentaries that she shot because she's a cinematographer by trade. And there's a, a, a segment from Fahrenheit 9-11 where they talk to a soldier who decides on camera right then that he's not going back to Iraq, regardless of whether or not they ask him to. Um, and then so on this, they actually um, track down that soldier and they get more about his story that's not in that film, not in Fahrenheit 9-11. Wow. All right, I'm yeah. definitely going to check that out. Cameron Person yeah. was one of my favorite yeah. films I've seen in a long, long time. I feel like that whole movie could be full of stories that mm-hmm. you could track down. One of the best scenes will always stick with me. I don't think I'll ever forget this scene is the scene of the tiny little thumb drive getting thrown into a concrete mixer and being oh. mixed up into concrete. And like, I remember that. What's on the thumb drive? Not to. It's in a sidewalk <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> Not to replay camera person over and over again, but my favorite scene, is, I think it's the opening scene, mm-hmm. is when she's like laying down on a Road and, and like then the lightning strikes in the distance. She goes, Wow, uh, it's just a wonderful, yeah. I, I just that movie really 
It's, it might be hard to watch at home, but it was just absolutely gorgeous in a, in a theater. Well. It wrecked yeah. me. I came out of the theater and Omaya asked me some like really intelligent question about it. And I just like, I just, I didn't, I don't even know if I said words. I just was stunned and couldn't make sentences. I, I love that movie so much. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that I made it. Maybe we should screen it again. Yeah. I would be, yes, you should. I mean, it, it's it's great that it, uh, I think it bypasses a lot of um, logic and it goes straight for the emotions, which is rare for something that's so abstract. Mm -hmm. Usually, you have to find words or reasons um, sometimes with something abstract to make it make sense. But I felt like it just was that lucky experience where something's abstract in art and just kind of cuts through and makes a lot of sense, sort of by itself. All right, enough of that. We got it. We're we're at the end. The move. What's the move for uh, the week or the weekend? The move is that you should get the uh, get thyself to Cotton Plant, Arkansas. <laughs> um, I know it's St. Patty's Day, and we just talked about all the crazy, bizarre things that are happening in Hot Springs and El Dorado and elsewhere. But um, Sister Rosetta Tharp, the massively influential guitarist and uh, songwriter, is from Cotton Plant, Arkansas. She's being honored with a concert, a tribute concert, this Saturday at 1 p.m. Uh, you can uh, visit that at the Arc, Arca Park, A-R-C-A -A Park. Look, Cotton Plant Small, you're gonna find it. Uh, yeah. um, there's, after that, a documentary screening at uh, three o'clock at the Cotton Plant Historical Museum. There will also be an unveiling of the Sisters at Tharp Soils and the Soul Arkansas Delta Music Trail Marker and uh, that's to come so check it out if uh, you wanted those details just google cotton plant historical museum you'll find out all about it and if you want a carpool i'm going friday morning so let's hang out all right uh thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week